Hey, basketball fans, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Around the Rim, your ESPNW Women's Basketball Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, we just want to remind you that we need your support. That's right. Make sure you are subscribing to Around the Rim, wherever it is that you get your podcast. Remember, you can find us also on the ESPN app, on Spotify, uh, but definitely subscribe, rate us, comments, whatever you have to say, leave us a note. And if you want to talk directly to Tariq and I, uh, you can find us on social media at Around the Rim Pod on Twitter. Um, I am at LaChina Robinson. Tariq is at SheKnowsSports underscore. And we also have an email for those that are into that kind of thing. <laughs> it is at Around the Rim Podcast at gmail.com. So email us, tweet us. Comment, share, subscribe. This is Around the Rim with LaChina Robinson. Hey, basketball fans. Welcome to a brand spanking new episode of your ESPNW Women's Basketball Podcast, Around the Rim. I'm your host, LaChina Robinson, joined, as always, by my fantastic and fabulous producer, Tarika Foster-Brasby, who always looks better than me on the Zoom, but that's fine. Blast. Um, <laughs> we have a great podcast lineup for you. Um, we have some different perspectives on how both collegiate and professional athletes are dealing with, um, are processing and are making a difference as it pertains to the, um, racial injustices that are happening in our country, Black Lives Matter, police brutality, all the things we've been talking about um, for the last, it feels like two months, T. Has it been that long? I mean, since it's- Since George Floyd's death? It's been two months, uh, two months since it's been as popular as it is, but we've been talking about it for ages. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, well yeah, we've been talking about it for a while, but I was just trying to figure out, I can't even remember how long ago George Floyd passed away. But anyway, as you know, Tariq and I have been trying to keep this conversation alive through different perspectives. And today we'll have um, Brianna Turner, who has been very outspoken in sharing her story. Uh, she's a forward for the Phoenix Mercury. You would also know her from her time at Notre Dame. But more important than that, it's her perspective on all that is happening, in particular around police brutality, because both of her parents are police officers. So uh, we'll talk a little bit to, to Brianna. She has a very, very interesting perspective on how she feels like college coaches should be dealing with their student athletes, what they should be saying, and what they're not saying in some instances. Um, and speaking of the college front, we also have with us two amazing representatives from the University of Delaware, Natasha Adair, head coach of their women's basketball program, and rising junior Paris McBride. And you are going to be just so impressed and in awe of the work that Delaware women's basketball is doing. They are not just tweeting. They are not just posting. They are not just having conversations, but they are getting legislation passed. I mean, Tarika, I'm just impressed. I was extremely impressed and honestly I felt like maybe I'm not doing enough like they have motivated me to really think about what I need to be doing more of to get some legislation passed here in Hartford myself okay I mean can we put action behind the words now I have seen you out protesting and doing some things so I will say you have been um definitely on the forefront my girl T has been out here. I have not attended a protest yet, I will say. Um, I have been quarantining to the nth degree, but uh, definitely trying to put actions behind my words. Just be intentional about it, people. You know, get a plan. doesn't have to be tomorrow. Don't have to rush. It could be next year. It could be five years from now if, you, if it takes you that long to figure out kind of where you want to have an impact. But do something. And our guest today are doing exactly that. But before we get into the podcast, Tarika, we've got a lot happening around WNBA. In particular, the season is about to kick off. Um, if you have not heard, WNBA season will begin on July 25th, that's Saturday. Um, and Tarika's gonna tell you about the opening day matchups because she has a problem with uh, who's gonna be taking the floor on opening day on our networks. But just so you know, ESPN, will present 24 regular season telecasts during the first half of the season, including three games on ABC, six on ESPN, 15 on ESPN2, and up to 19 playoff games. Just an incredible slate of coverage 
uh, more than double the number of games that we would be expecting in a full season. So this is just tremendous for the league. Um, congrats to ESPN, Carol Stiff, and programming for, for putting this together and to clear, for clearing the space for WNBA. Because it's going to be an exciting kickoff. Now, Tarika, what is your issue with July 25th? Let me just say, before I go that far in it, right, I get why some people are excited about some of the matchups. But for me in particular, the 5 o'clock matchup between the Fever and the Mystics, honestly, and it's no shade to Indiana, it could have been Connecticut. It should have been Connecticut. I understand that it's not the same team. I don't want to hear your argument of all these people who are not playing, people who are not there anymore. I get it. But there's just something about seeing the former WNBA finals teams matching up again on the first day of the season. I feel like it's only right. Connecticut has earned it regardless of who's playing. They should be playing on opening day. So I do get that, and most people probably are thinking, and that's been somewhat of a tradition that we start the season with the two teams that won it last year. But um, we are in a pandemic, and people are doing things differently. Um, the biggest difference in this pandemic is that these teams don't have their normal lineup. So Connecticut doesn't have John Paul Jones, which makes them very different. They're not the same Connecticut team, though I am excited about Tawana Bonner, um, Washington may not have Deladon, may not have Tina Charles, uh, definitely doesn't have Natasha Cloud, Latoya Sanders, you know, so on and so on. And so I get not starting the season with what you don't have, but it said what you do have and what we do have is the number one overall pick of the 2020 draft, Sabrina Unescu facing Sue Bird. I mean, that's like, I wasn't going to say the past meets the future, but Sue, you know, she might not be happy with that. I'm going to say the <laughs> present meets the future. Um, so that would be a great matchup. Stewie, I mean, New York is super young, and so you hope that, ooh, for Walt Hopkins' sake, that they can hold their own, especially after a shortened training camp. Mm -hmm. They have no Asia Dirt, no Megan Walker. So this could be a slaughter out the gates. <laughs> For Seattle, you hope not, but that's noon on ESPN, July 25th. And then the second game of that doubleheader, you can call it, starts at 3 o'clock, and it's the L.A. Sparks versus the Phoenix Mer Mercury on ABC, which mm -hmm. is, is great to see. So shout-out to everyone on a great schedule, and we're looking forward to the coverage. Tarika, what else is happening? Well, the last time you and I got together for a podcast, we were wondering who in the world is Duke going to select as their new head coach? I didn't have any idea. I don't know if you did because you are all-knowing. But Kara Lawson, she's the new head coach at Duke. How crazy is that? I'm excited for Kara, and I could kick myself because I did have her name on a list the day we did the show. Uh, I didn't have my list with me, so I was talking off the top of my head. But she ha is a name that people were throwing around. Someone actually responded to a tweet that I put out about who would get the job and put mm -hmm. her name in it. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I know there's some critics out there that are saying, well, she hasn't really coached college basketball and what experience she doesn't have. You know, we have got to get out of this mindset. And I just want to go on a small little rant just in general and how we look at um, people who are, quote, hireable or um, someone who, in the p opinions of others, has a resume deserving of, of some certain opportunity and what qualifications look like, okay? Like, how many times have you seen someone in a position, Tarika, and looked at their resume and they may not have said resume that, you know, most people think they should in a certain position, but they're very good at their job. You know why that happens? It's because you don't have to get stuck in this blueprint of this is what you have to have to be successful. I know people that have been coaching in college basketball for 20 years and could not go and recruit a kid right now if you asked them to. I know people that have been coaching in college for 15 years, and if you give them a clipboard, they couldn't drop a play. It, it is not about your years of service. I, I do believe that, hey, if you've got a, a great resume on the college level and you think you should have got a shot at the Duke job, that's fine. I'm all here for that. But to say that Kara doesn't have the qualifications for that job, to me, is um, a stretch when she has gone to three Final Fours, 
she has coached on the USA basketball level, even though that was three on three. She's mm-hmm. been an outstanding broadcaster for something like 15 years for, for ESPN um, and other networks. She's coached in the NBA. Listen, she learned under, under Pat Summit. She Thank has an Olympic gold, gold medal. Like, I don't want to hear it. Listen, her experience and her qualifications may not look the way you want them to, but we live in a world where we've got to be willing to get outside of that box. If someone is good, they're good. I don't care how many boxes they check, don't check. If they can do the job, come on. There is absolutely nothing that needs to be said after that because you just nailed it. Pat Summit was all I needed to hear to be like, yep, that's that's a winner. Period. Um, yeah, so moving on, congratulations, Kara. We wish you the best at Duke. Um, what do you think about this situation going on with Elena Deladon in the WNBA? As of right now, while she will be sitting out the season, we assume, and by doing so, she'll be paid because of an injury that she sustained to her back recently and having to have surgery for that. She went to a panel and presented her case to a panel of physicians um, to see if her situation with Lyme disease would qualify her for a medical excusal to opt out. Um, Under the COVID-19, there are people who have basically found to be susceptible to COVID-19 due to pre-existing conditions. And the panel basically denied her. I have so many thoughts about this situation, but you first, Lachana. Yeah, I think a lot of people let Elena Deladon down in this in this process. You know, um, number one, to me, starting with this medical panel, I think it's unacceptable for anyone at this point um, to say that they can definitively declare that COVID-19 does not interact with any condition or any virus in a way that would be considered high risk. Um, you know, there's just not enough research out here on, on the coronavirus. We're still learning. We obviously don't know exactly what this, this virus is capable of. I mean, there's been mutations. There are, um, you know, post-coronavirus sufferers that are having symptoms that we didn't foresee. We've got people that are testing positive after they've tested positive. Um, So many things that we're just learning about it. So I don't know that anyone on that panel, and I'm not a a medical expert and I'm not claiming to be one, but I I just don't believe that as a country, we're at a place where we can rule out any medical condition as um, not being susceptible to um, the coronavirus or that there won't be complications. They can't guarantee you that. Uh, and so, you know, it, it sounded like in some conversations that Elena had had that she was told that the virus probably is going to get into the bubble at some point. So um, with the information she had and with we've known, Tariqa, we've watched Elena Deladon, you know, suffer from Lyme disease for years. It's caused her to miss time. And this is not anything new to those of us that cover the WNBA. You know, I saw a piece in the Players' Tribune where she said she has to take 64 pills a day. Like, that's like, you know, for you to try to challenge what someone else has dealt with or has suffered from. And I'm not saying that everybody that says, oh, yeah, you know, I should be able to um, you know, not work and get paid, too. Because there's people out here that are saying, yeah, like, everybody should be able to do that because we don't know about the coronavirus. But this is well documented. Elena went through the trouble of getting her own reports from her own doctor that she's been treated by. Um, She had medical advice from from that doctor that says that she should not enter the bubble. Um, And so I just, when you don't know enough about the long-term effects of a disease like this, and even for anyone, even someone that doesn't have Lyme disease, like it's a very hard decision to make when you have to choose between your health and your livelihood. And I just feel like Elena... Um, was not given the proper, I, I just don't think the, the, this medical panel really did its, its due diligence and um, came out with the right verdict. Now, the other thing I will say is that this whole process has really been elusive. Like, I don't know what's happening with this medical process. We don't know what's going on with Liz Cambage or Tina Charles. I have no idea. Now, we are learning more. I guess this medical panel was selected by the Players Association and the league. So for everyone saying the league selected this panel, it's not true. 
right? The Players Association was also involved. How they went about getting a release um, so that players could not appeal the decision of the medical panel, that's crazy to me that that would even be an ask because I think any process of this nature should have an appeal um, process to it. So that's concerning. But also it's just been the the quietness of the league and the players association around all of this. Like it's almost like Atlanta's out here. I mean, her teammates are fighting for, I've seen plenty of players out here upset with what's happened, but just not a strong sense of support, you know, and I know Kathy Engelberg went on CNN and she said, you know, we understand what's happened with Elena and all all of that, but you just feel like more could be said, more could be done. And it's a difficult, listen, Tariqa, I get it. There's a fine line with all of this. And when money's involved and, you know, people were saying because she's the MVP, are they trying to give her special treatment? No, she has Lyme disease. Okay. Like, which is affects your immune system. So how can you say, Anyway, it's it's a tough topic all the way around. It's a very tough topic. And I just, aside from everything that you've mentioned, I just feel like there's a lack of professional courtesy, in my opinion, that was considered in this. And by that, I mean, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. Um, however, it just seems as if someone had been doing research on something, had been treating someone about something, had been keeping up with someone about something for nine years, that that would have been a part of what I would consider when making a final decision. And if I'm someone who have not taken the time to study this disease in depth, then I just find it very interesting that I could definitively say to someone, no, this isn't going to have the kind of effect that we assume that it will and not take into account the person that has been doing the work for an extended period of time. So for me, it was just, you know, I I felt that there was a lack of professional courtesy, in my opinion. Right. And I think something that people have to think about is they're like, oh, well, now the mystics are going to pay anyway and whatever. But that's not what it's about, because this changes what the next few months look like for Elena. If she had gotten a medical exemption, she could have continued to really um, protect herself from the virus in whatever way she feels necessary. Now there may be some obligation for her to go in and do rehab for her back. Um, you know, when this, when her back is healed, say in a month, they say your back is better. Now is she going to be faced with the decision again of choosing between the Lyme disease and, you know, going into this, this bubble with her team? Like it's just all of it. The whole thing is, it's just doesn't feel great. I don't think these players really had enough time to process all of this mm-hmm. in a way. Part of me feels like, you know, maybe on a shorter, even shorter season than they have now, like doing maybe 50% of the games, you know, they could have given them a few more weeks to really set this protocol up, obviously get IMG ready for everything. Right. Um, everything just seems so rushed and not a lot of transparency. And, and when it comes to health and, your livelihood, those are important things. I mean, they're not just, it's not just something that you decide overnight or two nights or three nights. It's things you talk to your family about. It's, you know, you having the, the chance to really weigh your options and make the best decision for you. And, and I don't know that that has happened in this process and not just for the WBA for any professional sports. Agreed. Well, um, I believe that things will work out the way that they're supposed to. Um, I have the, the faith that Elena will definitely make the best decision for her and for her family. And I read her piece in the Players' Tribune as well. Um, and just for all of these women, like I, I honestly just hope that everything works out for the best for all of them. Um, because I am one of those people who do believe at some point that virus is going to enter the bubble. It's nothing's foolproof. You know, we've already seen it um, on the NBA side. I mean, they've even got something like a tip line where they're asking players to like snitch on other players who are going outside the bubble. I mean, like they're going to extremes <laughs> to ensure safety, not, not something that I could see myself doing, um, but also not having to be faced with the decision that these players were faced with. So um, there's that, but um, there are a lot, go ahead. I'm sorry. And there is, there, there is a privacy thing to all this too. I want to say around the coronavirus and around health. So I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, when I said something about transparency, like I do, I know that HIPAA's involved and I know, um, you know, that you can't always talk openly and, and 
however you want if you're the league or the players association or a team about what's happening with players and their health. Right. Um, but I do believe in, in transparency and process. But to your point, I, I also believe, I think it's a great one, Tariqa, like the virus is going to, to penetrate that bubble at some point. We've heard it already has. And like, what, what's the protocol? What happens? How many, yeah. what's the percentage? You know, we're not even really getting testing results in a timely manner. So there's just, I just would like more information as much as we could possibly get Mm-hmm. that is not in violation of a player's you know, health and safety. Uh, I'm excited about these interviews. We've been talking about social justice for a while, and we've been holding on to some good info for a while, so I'm glad that we're finally getting ready to release it so people can hear um, the wonderful ways that these women are being change agents, really. It's really Yeah. Cool. Rihanna Turner, Natasha Adair, Harris McBride. Well, fans, we want to continue this very important conversation and bring in a young woman who has been outstanding in using her voice and using her platform to address some of the issues of social injustice that we are seeing in our our society. Uh, Please join me in welcoming three-time Defensive Player of the Year during her time at Notre Dame, a national championship there. And I always say, Brie, you know, that injury, I know, was tough to have to experience that, but that setback allowed you – it set you up, right, <laughs> to be there when your team went on to, to win the national championship. Um, you were on the all-rookie team for the WNBA last season, entering your second season with the Phoenix Mercury. So, Bree, you and I talked about your passion for social justice way back when we were sitting in the little room at Notre Dame and um, you started to think about what you wanted to do beyond basketball. When was the first moment or instant in your life that you knew this would be um, something that you would be passionate about and use your platform for? Um, I actually, like, really feel like it just wasn't a certain time. I feel like always, like, I just tweet what I'm feeling. Like, if I see something in community, if I see something going on or I see an injustice, like, I just feel like I need to speak about it, speak on it. It was never like, oh, like, I play basketball, I should talk about it. It's more like, I'm an American citizen. Like, why shouldn't I talk about it? And when was maybe the first time in your life that you personally experienced any type of racism or um, – unconscious racial bias or anything of that nature definitely like the microaggression stuff like even now like people texting me like i didn't know you spoke so well like what does that even mean like i'm college educated like <laughs> like i don't even like what what do you mean i you didn't know i would speak well like I, just like minor things or things that people think are minor or don't think like they think it's a compliment but really it's not yeah, uh, I know that Tarika and I um, engage in various conversations all the time about what people assume about, you know, what black looks like, right? Or I get it all the time. Like when I tell people that, you know, my dad didn't graduate high school and, um, you know, that I'm one of 15 brothers and sisters, whatever that means that I have a big family or that, you know, my brother was murdered. They like, they're like, wow, I wouldn't have known that looking at you. And I'm like, that is actually more of the reality of most black women in America than it is whatever you're thinking, which is probably did your parents go to Harvard or did your, you know, I mean, all the assumptions and the, um, you know, just like you said, the microaggressions are the thing that I feel like I deal with um, very often on a day-to-day basis, but you have a unique dynamic um, with your parents and that they are both police officers How do you think that gives you a different perspective on this conversation that's happening right now around the murder of George Floyd? Um, I think it just gives me like an uh, access other people don't have. Like, yes, I'm fighting the Black Lives Matter fight on Twitter, but I'm also like listening to my parents. I'm asking them, how does like racial bias training um, work where you work? My mom works for the state, but my dad works for the city. So like, obviously it's a little bit different. Um, but just asking, like, I'm like, mom, you better not be tear gassing nobody. Like, I'm texting her, like, don't, don't be doing that to the peaceful protesters. Like, make sure no one under your authority is doing it. Like, I'm telling people to hold their family accountable. I'm holding my own family accountable. Like, even though they work in law enforcement, like, I'm still hitting them up. Like, I was up late last night because 
my mom was like kind of like in the control center like overlooking the protest so like she couldn't leave till the protests were gone so it's like I know you guys are worried about your lives and I'm worried about your lives as well but I'm also worried about my mom's life I'm worried about if she's gonna make it home I'm worried about if someone's oh like all the police are bad so we need to make sure we hurt the police and it's like it's not true like all the police are not bad like Texas alone has got over 60,000 officers over 2,000 different police departments like I feel like a lot of people think like, oh, Houston, one of the police department. There's so many departments even within Houston. And I think obviously there is some bad cops, but I promise, like I tell people like there are good cops out there. So it's just, it's just a constant battle, like fighting that fight. Yeah. I'm interested in knowing, and I know none of us have the answers, right? But when you've had conversations with your parents about police brutality, do they give you your thoughts on whether or not they feel like there should be a change in, in training and what's happening within police departments? Is this something that they feel it would be more effectively um, addressed if you go back to how people were raised? Like, what do you hear most often from your parents being that they are a part of the police? I would just say it's a combination, like with the way some people were raised, and what some people's intentions were when they do want to become a police officer like some people just want it to be in that this is not their words these are my words but i think like some people want to do it to be in that power position i feel like others want to do it to help serve the community so i feel like there's a lot of different motives behind um people's reasoning but i also think that you have to address issues of race you have to address issues of racial bias especially in the communities that you're patrolling because you need to patrol each community the same way. You shouldn't be patrolling a certain community one way, then turn the corner and do something else in a different neighborhood. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to take a look at a few of your tweets because I just think um, you often, and I, and I shared this with you the other day, you express in many situations feelings that I've felt, but more than anything, you give me kind of some insight. I think it was Steve Kerr that was talking about how this generation, and I just imagine you is just equipped much differently um, in the way you think and the way you feel and, and even your courage to express your thoughts, um, you know, it, it, out in the public, which is very different from my mom's generation and even to mine. But you tweeted, if you look at the U.S. and think this isn't America, this isn't who we are, you are part of the problem. And I know you spoke to Forbes at length as well. So I have a, a couple of tweets from that, but or a couple of quotes from that. But what did you mean by if you look at this and you think this is an American who we are, you're part of the problem. What is that problem? Um, people just not seeing reality. Like I'm tweeting about like institutional racism and racial bias and stuff. And this is some people's first time hearing that. Like if you're a grown adult, that should not be the case. Like it just shows me that you are unaware of what's happening in society. It shows me that we cannot relate. It shows me that we are on different spectrums in terms of this country. So just like, if you are so unaware of what's going on around you continuously, you are definitely a part of the problem. Whether you want to admit it or not, I mean, that's up to you. But if you see these instances and you're thinking like, wow, like I, I didn't even know that that's happening. And it's like, where have you been? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it has been, it's been interesting watching Twitter because and like you said, you've gotten some text messages, people saying, oh, I didn't know you spoke so well. I just keep going back to that because that just irks me. So <laughs> what do people look like that speak well? Like, what are people supposed to look like that are in my position or your position? Exactly. Or people that are like, you speak white. And it's like, I, I, don't, I don't know what you mean by that. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what, are you, what, what are you saying? I look at Twitter and, and it's, you know, and I've gotten texts, you've gotten texts, and people are, are trying to express themselves, but there's, there's been a lot of criticism, right, about what the real level of authenticity is. There's been criticism of, oh, it's taking you too long to say anything. There's criticism of, oh, you haven't said anything at all. Um, one thing that you touched upon that I thought was very interesting, and obviously this is a women's basketball podcast, so we talk about these kind of things as it pertains to college athletics, but you tweeted that, um, let me find it real quick. You said recruits deciding what school they want to attend. 
please be vigilant right now. See what coaches are speaking out now and what coaches aren't. Think about if you would feel comfortable speaking about the current issues with your coach. Would they be open or reject such a discussion? If you were a recruit or if you were in that situation, what does that say? And what would you be looking for from a coach right now to feel that they have any level of awareness or understanding of what's happening in the world for people like you? Um, definitely with some of the statements, I feel like they're very, some, I feel like some statements are very generic or some people might just retweet what the school says. And when I say generic, I mean, it don't even say police brutality or black people. Like the issue is police brutality against black people. So if you make a statement and I can substitute um, immigrants or black people or LGBT, because I don't know because you didn't address it, like that's an issue. So first off, <laughs> people need to address the problem at hand. And then also on a tweet is kind of like, if you're a coach and you're recruiting me and you're doing home visit, you're coming into my home and telling my parents or you're gonna look after me and protect me for four or five years, but you can't even publicly defend people that look like me, how am I supposed to trust that you're gonna take care of me outside of the court? How am I supposed to trust that if something goes down on campus racially motivated that you're gonna have my back with the with the school? Like I feel like it for me, I don't I, I two of them I feel different, but for me it's just like a trust standpoint and it's, it, I feel like it's not political. Like, what, what's political about you defending Black lives? Yeah, it, we found these instances of people trying to make this about politics, and this is human rights. Like, this is basic, the basic human right to live. And, you know, you, you, you take all those other factors out of it and no one is allowed to take anyone else's life. But whether you feel like that is right or wrong or whether you feel like you have the authority to take someone's life, that is the problem. And that is where racism comes in. But, you know, when I think about college athletics, the thing that concerns me the most is for the people that you speak of, the coaches or even I've seen people in media that haven't spoke up on black lives and how can you care so much about the number of points a player scores or rebounds they have or you know you're a shoot around and you're buddy buddy with them but you don't care about whether or not they feel safe every day in society like there's just something really sickening about that and maybe you do care don't get me wrong like i know some people have expressed um you know even anxiety over what they should say or what they should do or how they should express themselves i'm sorry i gotta cut you off there something for me it's like no offense but i don't want your white tears i don't want you to feel bad and feel guilty like i shouldn't be consoling you because people like me are getting killed by police your guilt does not help me in any way shape or form if you want to help me if you want to show me that you're in this that you're in this fight you support me i want you to take a stand I want you to make a statement. I want you to be as passionate about this as I am. That's how you show me. Show me with your actions. Yeah. And let's talk about the, the details of it. I mean, we've seen some retweets, right? Like, so not official statement from me, but we've seen some retweets. Is that acceptable in your eyes? Likes? <laughs> Honestly, I guess it's better than nothing. But I feel like at this point, some people are just putting out statements they feel obligated and... It, it's just like maybe y'all if y'all that's how y'all feel just like don't say anything like I didn't put that tweet out to make people feel guilty and be like oh like oh yeah that's true let me just throw out this statement so my recruits feel good about coming here and it's like honestly like if that's your reasoning you are a part of the problem yeah well and the other thing too breathe is that um I think people feel like they don't need to say anything because they don't think they're racist, right? So first of all, <laughs> unconscious racial bias exists in an enormous number in our world, right? So just because you don't think you're a racist means nothing. The other thing is that it's not just about you. It's more of when you make a statement, when you take a stand, guess what everyone around you now does? hmm, I wonder why she cares about these black people or I wonder why he cares about black people dying. Maybe I should be caring. Maybe I should Google and see what's going on. See, once you take a stance on something, then you're educating someone else, right? You're forcing someone else to see an issue that they may not have seen. And I'll be honest, I have 
been petty, petty. I have gone to people's Twitter to see who they follow because I believe that if you're not following people of color or if you're following the 10 people of color that you're most comfortable with, how do you have any diversity in the information you're taking in and how you're seeing black people and how you're how visible they are or aren't, aren't in society, how they're feeling about the things that happen. And so I'm like, if you're following five black people on Twitter, no wonder, you know, that you have no clue what's going on, but also your account is the account that we need to get the word out to all the other non-black people you are following so that they can hear the message. Exactly. Yeah. Statements that are like, I love all my black friends. Okay, what about the people that are black but aren't your friends? Do you love them too? Like, are you going to treat them the same way that you treat your black friend that you already know and trust and can go to? Like, okay, you, you love your black friends. Congratulations. But I love black people in general. I care about black people across the country, whether they're my friend, whether I know them. Like, I care about society. I care about humanity. I care about people as a whole, not just the ones that I'm friends with. I think that's the difference there. It's like, I have black friends or, oh, I, I dated a black guy a couple years ago. It's like, I'm sorry, that, that just, that's not a good, that's not a good yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, and it does nothing for moving the mission forward. And we are going to get to some, some solutions, some steps that we can give people in a moment. But I want to go on that thought because, you know, what the next step is now that you have black friends is are you having conversations with your black friends? Do you talk about how great your black friends are to other white people? Like those are the kind of things that normalize our existence. One thing that I tweeted when this all first happened was this is why we push for diversity in our world is because we have to justify our own humanity. And if you don't see us, it's easy to forget that we're human too. If you don't see us in spaces where we're powerful and we, we, are, we speak well and you know, we're educated and passionate and we're humans, then you may forget when you're Amy Cooper in a park that just because this is the kind of black person that you see in your life, you see black people as threats, doesn't give you the right to try to lie and convince the police that this person is a threat. That is where we have to get better as society. But we got a lot of work to do. So before we get to some of that work, uh, I want to talk for a minute about the WNBA because that's we have this podcast because of women's basketball, right? And the WNBA is majority black women. Um, college women's basketball is dominated by, by black women. And that's another reason why I wanted to ask you uh, that question about college athletics. But, you know, my question isn't why the WNBA speaks up, because I get it. Like, this is impacting this league more than anyone else. And the WNBA is full of women who are brilliant. And yes, they have opinions on a lot of things. But what can people really learn from the stories of the women in the WNBA that would advance this conversation on racism? Um, I think really just taking the time to listen, listen to the words being put out. You have Natasha Cloud, she's mixed. She's putting out statements about, or she wrote a whole article in the Players' Tribune about this topic. And it's like, people might be like, oh, like, of course, like she's black talking about it. But then you have other people that are black and also mixed that are speaking about it. So it's just like using our platform. Um, like, and like I said, like, this is a humanity, this is a human rights issue. Like, I don't get, why more people are not speaking out about it. And I get like some people, oh, I don't want to post publicly uh, or stuff. And it's like, okay, fine. But are you having those conversations at home with your friends? Are you holding people accountable to their racial bias? Are you like, are you, if you're not stepping in and saying something, I feel like you're just being complicit at that point. So wh whose side are you really on or who are you trying to advance and help the cause? And that's some really good advice. And I wanted to share a couple other things as we were talking about college athletics. I read a good um, article by ROI. It's Return on Inclusion, um, an organization that's fairly new that a friend of mine started. And it says, how coaches and athletic administrators can be allies to student athletes of color. 
And I'll just name off a couple of a few of these things, but their Twitter handle handle is at ROI inclusion. So if you are listening to this message from Brianna that's saying your student athletes want to know that you'll stand for them and you'll stand with them and not just on social media, but also on your campuses. Some of the advice is accept the experiences of student athletes of color as valid and important. Don't wait for student athletes to come to you. Educate yourself and initiate conversations about racism with the entire team, not just student athletes of color. Recognize that no one can avoid the forces of racism. Acknowledge white privilege and share your desire to advocate for student athletes of color. Break the silence and embrace the discomfort of not knowing. Use your platform to confront and challenge racist narratives, stereotypes, and policing. That is so important confronting those stereotypes and challenging the things that people around you are saying about black people. Um, disrupt derogatory slurs, language, racist ideas and jokes when you hear them. Apologize if you make a mistake. Encourage your white colleagues to work with you to address racism. So those are just a few of the suggestions. But if, as you look at all that's happened, and, and there's so many levels to this, right? Like. And I'm drilling down what's happened to George Floyd to our unique experiences because I think people look at this and say, okay, well, once the George Floyd situation is taken care of, you know, now that I think they've charged the other three officers, it's like, all right, so everyone will kind of calm down and relax. But what they don't realize is that we face things every day in our society. I tell people I grew up scared to death of the police. Like, they were not, to, in our neighborhood, in our eyes, they were not there to protect and serve. That's not, the, that's not the neighborhood that I grew up in because my family was constantly harassed. And if I was sitting there doing nothing, I was asked, what am I doing here? What am I looking at? Why are you standing here? I mean, this is something that's going on in our lives. So we are furious as a result of what happened to George Floyd, but it's so much bigger than that. And there's so many different layers as it pertains to what's happening to all of our lives. So I know you can't give us advice on all of these different levels, but what is top of your mind? And I know you've named a couple of things that white people can do to be allies, but what else can we all be doing to help this situation? I would say really just try to educate yourself on these words you're using, racial bias, implicit bias, systemic racism, um, institutional racism. See like, see why people are furious. See, this, see the steps, like this is not an issue that just happened in 2020. Like this is an issue that's been going on for a very long time. And I think something, this conversation makes you go uncomfortable to address the differences. A lot of people are like, well, I don't see color. Like, I don't, I don't get it. And it's like, if you don't see color, you don't see me. You do not see the struggles of people that look like me. You, I cannot, hold a conversation with you if you cannot acknowledge basic human things and it's like you might not see race but a lot of people do so I'm, I'm gonna need you to talk about it read about it watch listen about it to make you comfortable like yes it might be uncomfortable for you to speak about this but I think it's uncomfortable to watch a man have a, a knee on him for eight eight and a half minutes and die too like so choose your level of discomfort choose how you want to be discomfortable we are all gonna have to get uncomfortable if we wanna do something about this. And this is just the beginning because this has been going on for a very long time. And, and Bree, we appreciate you and your willingness to get uncomfortable and have these conversations. And I wanna end um, with one of your quotes. I think this is again from the Forbes interview. Um, like I said in my thread, are you holding your friends accountable when you see them doing something that's racially biased? Are you holding your colleagues accountable? Are you sitting in your head like, I don't like that, she said that, but I'm not going to say anything. The call is to start saying something about what you see, about racism, about people of color that are treated unfair, about opportunities that you know they should have that they don't get, be an advocate for someone black. Support your black colleagues, friends. Um, this is, is, is not just a racial issue. This is a human rights issue. Thank you for joining us, Bree. Thank you for having me. We are uh, really excited to have a special conversation today on the Around the Rim podcast. As you all know, we are all about women's basketball. 
And in recent months, we have had various conversations around what's happening in our country with the social injustices, the fight against racism, police brutality, Black Lives Matter, all of the above. And we like to bring you the perspective of different voices, whether it's professional athletes, um, administrators. We talked to um, you know, Val Ackerman on one of our last podcasts. And today we are actually excited to have uh, the college athlete and coach perspective. I got an email from Maggie Han, who um, is sports information director at Delaware for women's basketball. And this is when you, you're doing your job right. You know, people always say, how do you know a good sports information director? Well, it's someone who, when they know they've got a story, they get it out to people so that we can know about what's happening with our women's basketball programs and that they get the coverage that they deserve. But Maggie sent me an email and I, I mean, my jaw just dropped upon reading what Delaware women's basketball has been up to, not only on their campus, not only in their community, but in the state as it pertains to the fight um, for social justice. So right now joining us for our show is head coach of Delaware women's basketball, Natasha Adair and rising junior Paris McBride. How you guys doing today? We're doing great. Thank you, LaChina, for having us. Yes, thank you for joining the show. So I'm just so impressed. And I want to go back, actually, yeah. Coach Adair, I'll start with you. You know, right. obviously, before we knew it, there was the murder of George Floyd, and our, and our country just erupted. Um, right. As a leader of mm -hmm. women, as a leader on your campus and your community, what was the first thought of the action that you felt like you needed to take um, immediately? Oh. Well, you know what, LaChina, and, and that's so you know interesting that you asked that question because I think about um, just the action piece and that, that word. Um, but immediately, I'll tell you, I was prompted by one of my assistant coaches, Michaela Walker, when all this was going on. We, we were on a staff call, and she said, Coach, we, we have to get – to the kids immediately. We have to get to the players. And so right now everything is via Zoom because we aren't all together, obviously due to COVID. Well, I'm going through a range of emotions myself, you know, as a mother, as, as a black woman with a black son uh, who, who's 22 years old um, and a black daughter who's 14 years old. So I have my own emotions that I have to manage. Well, when I got on the call with the players, there were only two questions that came to mind. The first one was, how are you feeling? And they put it in the chat. And there were a range of emotions. There, were, there was anger, disappointment, frustration, hurt, confused. And the word that I put was empowered. Uh, and then I asked another question, only two questions. I asked, what do you need from me as your coach and your coaching staff? And then what do you need from each other as your sisters? Their response was love and support, love and support, understanding. But then there was one word, direction. And at that point, LaChina, I knew it was time to act. Now, I told them that what they were feeling was right. And we didn't want to diminish anything that they were feeling. But my word was empowered because I'm older and I have felt those emotions and I feel them daily but as their leader I wanted to empower them to use their emotions for action and for change and so that's when you know a couple of days later they came back to me with action and, and Paris can give you more on how and, and why. Yeah yeah Paris I, I as I was reading it thank you for that coach you know I think people it's crazy because as a black woman myself, I think people forget that as you said, as you stated so eloquently, we have to put our own feelings in check first, right? Because we have a black husband, black brother, you know, whatever your family dynamic is, we're black women, you know, you think right. about the case of Breonna Taylor. And so before we even step out in a leadership position um, and, and try to lead others in, in what they may be feeling and what they may want to do against social injustice, we first have to get our own emotions in check. And that's hard, right? Because hard. look at hard. those pictures of victims and you see people you know. 
Um, and so that's an important step of it. And I, and I even once I feel like I have my emotions in check, you know, <laughs> every once in a while, just mm -hmm. kind of feel yourself getting worked up um, again and again. And, and um, Paris, yeah, so I, I was reading that it was actually your idea to write the letters to the mayors across Delaware. Where did that come to mind for you? And, and what was your first uh, point of action once you realized that that's what you needed to do? So um, a friend of mine that goes to Boston College, plays women's basketball there, um, she texted me like around everything that was happening and was like, get your team like on board and write a letter to the mayors and actually take action because that's what me and my teammates are doing in uh, Massachusetts. So I was like, that's a great idea. I, uh, I texted a couple of my teammates on the side just to like, like get their ideas and make a Google Doc and then we introduced it to the team and then like everyone jumped on board. So when I got to the time to tell the coaches, they were all for it. And um, it just blew up from there. Like, we had the support from the administration and the athletic department. Um, we started having meetings with, like, the attorney general, governor, like, people I never thought I'd be in a room with or on Zoom with. Like, we're having meetings and actually, like, talking and getting good advice and feedback. And, and take me back, because I do want to get into those meetings in a, in a moment, but take me back to what Coach Adair just described as that initial conversation with the team. Um, how did that make you feel to hear your head coach really posing those questions to you guys and, and just having a moment with your team after so much unrest in our, in our country? Um, I, I actually felt it was, like, very necessary and I'm glad it happened because, like, everyone comes from different walks of life and it's important to, like, you know, your teammates go through daily and, like, on a predominantly black team, like, it's important to have those conversations and like anybody else that's part of the black community we were like hurt and bad and like just devastated and actually wanted to make change and by the second zoom call we had like, we asked the same two questions or different words it was like hopeful and just like focused on like making progress and like that's awesome and it's so cool to hear that there was synergy around your friends even from different colleges i would love to be able to say paris that you know, my friends and I were mature. We're talking about maturity. <laughs> I know, right? Messaging. We had I am back then, and we <laughs> more about song lyrics than we were positive movement in the world. So I'm just impressed with with the level of maturity and leadership for you. Uh, you know, within your your friend group and with other student athletes. So you mentioned having meetings. Um, you know, with Attorney General Kathy Jennings. Mm -hmm. um, I know the governor of Delaware, John Carney, was involved via Zoom. Um, mm -hmm. Natasha, did this start moving much quicker than you anticipated, or what was kind of happening in the background as all of this was coming to fruition? Well, after I received the letter from the, from the players, and I looked over the letter, and, and like I said before, I had to hold back my tears. Yeah. Um, because once they put it to paper, once they, knowing that they had to do the research behind it and, and understand this is a team who they're, no one on the team is from the state, yeah. but yet they are taking ownership of where their feet are planted to make change. And so they did the background work. They did the they took the educational component and, and ran with it. And so once I got it, I went to Chrissy Raywalk, our, our AD, our athletic director, and I said, our student athletes have done this. This is, this is a voice. We need a platform. And she said, well, let me take it one step further. Let me reach out to Gino Grigowski. He's our assistant um, director for student athlete leadership development here. And let him get with the university government relations department. And let's see if we can get in front of the right people. She said, I don't want this letter to get lost on a desk. I want, because of the size of our state, you know, not every state can do this, but because we are such a small state, we can really reach out and touch our leaders and our government officials. And so after, uh, after I reached out to our AD, within a matter of days, we were in front of the attorney general. I mean, wow. this is one of the most powerful positions, right? She's gonna try, so she's tried so many different cases. And then the governor, with all that's going on with COVID and all that's going on with social injustices, for him to take time. And he wasn't rushed, LaChina, on the call. He didn't seem 
hurried. Uh, both of the leaders wanted to know what our student athletes needed from them and how they could help. And so the traction, the traction went a little quicker, obviously, than I anticipated. But with the right leaders in place, things move forward. Yeah, and people that are invested. And yes. what a great story about how, you know, we, we, we talk all the time about the influence of athletes and athletics, right? Um, and how you're using that influence. And, and what an amazing story of how you can bridge the gap between political leaders, Correct. And, you know, your, your government officials and your athletes who are also yeah. um, leaders in their own right. I always say that whether you want to be a role model or not, the moment you put that jersey on, you are totally a role model and you're a leader for, for someone, some little girl that sees you on the court or, you know, has watched you play. Um, just incredible. So, so Paris, I, I want to just talk for a moment about the process of this letter. So once you guys decided you wanted to put this letter together, Coach A. Bear said she read it and it brought her to tears. Um, <laughs> how did you guys know what you wanted to ask for and exactly what you wanted to express um, in this letter? Um, so we basically just write down ideas in the, in the um, Google Doc and like the common things were like how were police officers getting hired and how they're using, like, why they're using excessive force and, and like basically just things that they're doing to minorities that they don't do to like white people like and how and like we just tried to figure out how to express that in a, in a way that like they would get in and see where we're coming from so like when we express like the the um, chokeholds and um, the hiring process, when we get to the meetings, we express that even more. So they really know that like we're really focusing on on these things. Like it has to be a change in the police department, like somehow, some way, whether it's cams or uh, just a better hiring process. And and they really like understood where we were coming from. Gave us great feedback. And then I don't know if you know, but the the ban of chokeholds, like, like after we were uh, in a meeting with them, so like that's just an accomplishment that like not too many people can say that they were a part of. Mm-hmm. Yes, which brings me right to Executive Order Number Forty One. You mentioned Correct. some of the the highlights of it were the thorough psychological examination when hiring police officers, mm-hmm. the ban on chokeholds and other daily deadly restraints. Um, the funding for body cams. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that like? And I'd love for both of you to speak on that. We'll start with you, Coach Adair, to, to know that there was actually going to be legislation put in place, mm-hmm. which was prompted by a letter from your student-athletes. Well, and, and that speaks to the word empowerment, right? They were able to use their voice um, with the right people in front of the right people to affect change. And, and so when they wrote the letter, Lachani, obviously they were talking about police training, de-escalation training, um, the physical, like you said, the physical and, and psychological exams and mental health uh, with officers. Is there military background? Was there trauma while in the military? And, and how do they handle that? Body cameras. But when they were able to present to the attorney general, the attorney general also presented to the team as well as us uh, members of the task force, her initiatives. And so they talked about aligning with some of the same initiatives to then move it forward. And so basically it was a stronger voice um, in the room when you partner. And so that just speaks to what we're doing uh, as a university, what we're doing in the task force, their strength in numbers. Um, Kathy Jennings was phenomenal, Attorney General Jennings, and, and she really educated them on law, on what it takes to get in front of the General Assembly, and how to effectively bring about change. And so when we found out that, you know, Bill 41 was passed and, and what that meant, the student athletes now, they took action and they saw real results, tangible results. It's not just lip service anymore. Um, I, I think that now they're even hungrier. You know, their passion, their drive, just them as a united force. That was one thing, but you know what? It was huge in, in the real picture of student athletes who just took a crash course in, you know, government policies and legislation um, to, to bring about change. So for me, um, as, as a leader, as someone who's really encouraged them and 
push them to use their voice and use their platform, I couldn't be prouder of them as leaders and in, in watching them achieve what they have thus far. And Paris, how about your perspective when you heard that there was actually going to be an executive order number 41 put into place? What, what did that mean to you? Um, or what did that speak to you in terms of the effort that you had put in and actually seeing a result happen rather quickly than most legislation actually yes. has? Um, I was excited and I, like, I really felt like they actually understood where we were coming from and it's just exciting to just know that you played a part in something like that. Like, um, it's just, it was like, I just wanted to tell people, like, I told my parents, like, my, like, I just, like, I was a part of this, like, they just passed this, uh, this law, so, but it was just, it was just, like, kind of like I said, but, like, hopeful that other ideas that we that come up can be passed, too, just, like, the one that we thought about the first, like the first one we thought about, but there's many more, and like we're still doing work to this day to get more things passed. You can look back and say that you were a part of history on the right side of history, right? Sure. Delaware yeah. Athletics can say that, uh, the state of Delaware can say that, and it all started with empowering in a, in a Zoom meeting where you hear each other and you listen yeah. and you understand, and take yeah. action. Um, so I'm just curious, before we let both of you go, you know, I'd just like uh, you to speak on, and I'll start with you, Paris. If there are coaches listening, if there are athletics directors listening um, who are unsure about how they can support their student-athletes right now uh, as we are fighting with everything we have to combat the racism um, in our country, what would you tell those people that they can give their student athletes or how can they help best help you during this very challenging time? I would say just listen and just hear us. But then again, on the other side, educate yourself also because not everyone knows like everything, like, you don't know everything, but if you educate yourself and just listen to your student athletes and what they have to say, then you guys go along and just be behind them and everything they do. I love that. And Natasha, for you, um, as a leader, how can more people, whether it's in athletics, whether it's in politics, whether it's in the corporate world, how can more people take their words and turn them into action the way that you guys did to really show up in this fight of social injustice? I think you have to seek out the right people, China. I think you can't be afraid to, to ask questions. I, I think you, you know, for me, what I know, I know, but what I don't, uh, I want to find out uh, who are the people that can help bring this initiative to the forefront, but also surrounding yourself with those people uh, and, and making sure that you have allies um, in every area. I, I think that that's important, but, you know, sometimes you don't know and, and you don't have all the answers and that's okay, but you do, you're human. And, and these are humanitarian issues. This is, this is about civility. Um, this is about doing what's right. And I think everyone will get that little gut punch uh, when things are wrong and things aren't, aren't, aren't the way that you know that they should be. And I think you have to act on it. And, and sometimes you don't have the order. I didn't know when I, was gonna, when I talked to the team exactly what I was going to say. So I just wanted to know what was in their heart. And I listened to what was in their heart. And then I said, how do we do it together? So I, I just think that you have to follow your heart, follow your gut. Like Paris said, listen and uh, surround yourself with people who really are passionate and driven for change. Well, I love that, you know, even listening to Paris, it sounds like you guys are just getting started and you still have more work to do. I mean, I, I look forward to watching all that will happen, all the change that has come. But congratulations on, on what you guys have done um, and really set a precedence for what can happen when you set your mind on action and get the right people in, in the room to your point. So I'll be watching you, Paris, on and off the court. Yes. I just want to say to you, I've known you for a very long time. Um, you know, I would consider you someone I've called. You know, I know we don't talk as often as we would probably like, but if I had a daughter, that wanted to play basketball, no doubt I would send her to play for you. I just think you're such a classy person. You're always um, strong in your leadership. You care about the young women you coach, 
beyond who they might become on the court, but even as women in our in our worlds. Um, I just am so impressed and can't say enough about what you've done. And I just really feel like if more coaches took the approach of developing women and, and getting them ready for what's to come in life, uh, the experience of being a student athlete would, would be one that they would cherish for forever. Because I've seen you have that mark on the lives of so many young women. So thank you for the work that, that you do and um, continue to do. And thank you all for joining us on Around the Rim. Wow, LaChina, thank you so much. Thank you. We've got some Delaware fans here now. Yes, yes. Thank you, basketball fans, for tuning in to another episode. Make sure you are locked in next week for uh, the kickoff of WNBA season, July 25th at noon on ESPN. We look forward to seeing you there. But we will also have a new episode next week of ATR. So we will see you next week. See you guys. Thank you for listening to Around the Rim. Check out more podcasts from ESPN on the ESPN app.